This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to Pros and Concepts. Welcome. Today we have a special guest on. His name is Phil from the website or the YouTube channel, That Dang Dad. Welcome on, Phil. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Appreciate the invite. Yeah, so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we can get into our conversation about freedom. Yeah, my name is Phil. I go by That Dang Phil on Twitter, and I have a YouTube channel called That Dang Dad, which I started when my daughter was born about four years ago, and I was up late at night just sticking around and decided I was really into Philosophy Tube, if you know that YouTube channel at the time. Yep. And I was like, hey, what if I did Philosophy Tube, and I just sort of ripped it off wholesale, but at a much lower level of production. And so I started doing that and, you know, just talking about just different things that interested me. But the thing that really put me on the map and I think probably the reason that I'm maybe quote unquote qualified to talk about freedom and liberty and all that stuff is that I used to be a police officer in Southern California in Los Angeles County. And I did that for almost a decade. And now I am a police and prison abolitionist. And so that was kind of what put my channel on the map was people going like, whoa, you used to be a cop, but now you hate cops. How did that happen? So that's kind of how I got my name out there was being the police abolitionist ex-cop. And so people enjoy hearing about that. So I talk about that kind of thing, but I also talk about Whatever comes to mind on my channel, hip-hop music, horror movies, video games, the three other things you can talk about, that's what I talk about. So Nice, nice. And the video that we were basing this conversation on is the one you did on 4th of July last year. Uh, I love how you were dressed up kind of like that kind of just Americana kind of vibe there, the music and the rock music. <laughs> you were talking about freedom and how America is very much based on this idea of freedom, especially American conservatism. And you really steel man the conservative strength in having nice thoughts on what freedom is but then you have this nice critique of it as well and and so maybe we can start just having a conversation about what is this thing we call freedom it's pointed to all the time and what is it really yeah in addition to being a former police officer i grew up very conservative i grew up in a very conservative christian household very like fundamentalist old-time religion was how i was raised i've lived in orange county california which is the republican stronghold of california i've lived in austin texas i've been down in texas and stuff like that and i grew up with my dad listening to conservative talk radio rush limbaugh hugh hewitt michael medved dennis prager and so having grown up with that that's just something that's in my mind all the time and especially I have migrated leftward and far, far away from that. And I still remember the things that I enjoyed about how they talked about the world and kind of the ideas that they came up with. And I just always think it's really interesting because having a channel that talks about left-wing concepts, you know, we often get accused of being like an echo chamber and like, oh, you only talk to your friends. You guys only, you don't know nothing about how the real America with the heartland, you know? And it's like, no, I do know. (laughs) I do know because that's how I grew up. But yeah, I like to talk about the best version versions of these ideas that I may or may not agree with anymore. I like to talk about the best version of that because I think that human beings are often more alike 
than we think. We need the same things, right? Like we all need the same things, food, shelter, companionship. Like we have the same basic needs and then our politics go in wildly different directions. And I just think that's really fascinating that we're all starting from the same place of necessity and we arrive at very different conclusions about how we meet those necessities. And so that's what this video that I titled, you know, conservatives aren't wrong about liberty. It was really trying to say like, hey, you know what? Liberty is important and freedom is important. And part of what leads me down a more left-wing approach to politics is my own affinity for liberty and autonomy and dignity, human dignity. Like Those things are important, and I don't think that those are only the concerns of people that are on the right. And so that was kind of the genesis of the video, I guess. For sure. Yeah. I do find it funny that the right, basically when you hear somebody spouting off about freedom, for some reason it's become a right-wing thing, but like as that video specifically points out, that we all want to be left alone to do what we want to do, so long as, I think it was Thomas pain so long as we don't affect other people negatively which kind of leads us to positive and negative freedom i mean i guess okay let's start with just a broad definition like freedom is the ability to do whatever you want to do despite or without harming others so positive freedom the ability to act proactively to do things and then negative freedom is the freedom from harm the freedom from being subjugated or walked on kind of thing and that i think pretty much everybody on every part of the spectrum i mean maybe not the extreme authoritarian types but i think all of us really kind of want that right yeah i think nobody likes being push around, right? Nobody likes being told what to do, like even just from a human pettiness kind of way. Like it's annoying when you get bossed around. Nobody likes that. Except for those of us who do like that in very specific situations. Yeah, except for kinks. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, and I think that's what's so interesting about if I'm putting on a conservative character like I did at the beginning of the video, one of the first things that I talk about is liberty, you know, and you say liberty with that thick southern accent, <laughs> and that's just such a symbol for the right wing, but like why? Why is liberty only the domain of people that have sort of reactionary politics? Like, I don't think that's true. So that's kind of what I wanted to do in this video was study, like, you know, you've got these founding fathers that conservatives revere that are just like obsessed with the idea that like, I'm looking through my note sheets over here, you know, like Thomas Jefferson, super aggro, you know, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance watered by the blood of patriots. And it's like, <laughs> God damn, you like watered. But these were people that were very concerned with just being able to live their lives and to be the kinds of people that they want to be, you know, and the freedom from, and also just like the freedom to just be yourself and be in alignment with your own values, right? And so I think that's part of the big cultural war right now in the United States when it comes to things like queer rights and trans rights and things like that. You have a lot of conservatives. For them, the freedom to be themselves and to be in alignment with their values is the freedom to exclude, the freedom to push away, the freedom to fence people out of their spaces or whatever. Mm, isolate. So there is that tension and I obviously I don't agree with that, but I mean, I think that's a valid tension. It's like, how do people get to live out their values while also not excluding people from public spaces? It's an interesting tension. I hate to call it interesting. That's trivializing it. That is a tension that is very important to work out and I think is being worked out very poorly right now. Perpetually as well. Yeah. Right. But yeah, right. it is interesting to me how many people on the right see it as a threat that like trans people exist, right? Going to the bathroom, like what is more private, solo, solitary, do not perceive me act than just going to the bathroom? <laughs> like where else do we really just want to keep our eyes on our own paper than a public bathroom? 
but it has become this like site of public surveillance and I must be eternally vigilant and guarding bathrooms with this like military obsession. And it's like, it's a bathroom, you know, but for me, that's a fascinating site of like, what does it mean to be free? Do we privilege somebody's freedom to just go to the bathroom without being bothered? Or do we privilege your idea to be an obsessive weirdo in a bathroom? Strangely, that particular freedom there is them focusing on the freedom from, like the negative freedom of being, I guess, specifically when they want to talk about it in their strongest form and the one that's most persuasive to people is protecting children and women, right? So freedom from being molested by a scary trans person coming in. But yet they constantly talk about the freedom too. So I guess it's only freedom from that they were concerned with when it affects them or possibly with somebody guarding but like i guess you repeated the same question back like why is the right have this kind of corner on freedom and i guess it kind of makes me think of like how friedman economics and reagan and how like economic freedom is the only freedom that seems to matter most of the time these days what do you think where would you place this deviation towards the right i think so much of right-wing ideology is focused on the individual and on individualism and on you get your like thomas jefferson type who, in my opinion, or at least in my understanding of the man, is like his highest aspiration was to be like a lone farmer on a lone plot of land, dominant over his domain as a free autonomous individual. And like my measure of Thomas Jefferson is like that was his obsession is like the individual man on the individual plot of land doing things as he sees fit. I will grow corn if I wish to grow corn or I won't or, you know, and, and, and things like that. Whereas... You know, when I look at freedom, I tend to look at it more in like a societies and communities. And when I think about freedom, I think of like the freedom to build community and like the freedom to share spaces together and the freedom to, you know, for me, a big aspect of freedom would be something like the idea of universal health care, the freedom to go to the doctor, you know, the freedom to seek mental health care, the freedom to get your diabetes treated. Like those are equally important freedoms, but a lot of that relies on a more collective view of like, hey, we're all going to pitch into the system so that all of us can benefit from the system, right? Like we're all going to put in our money or our time or our taxes or, you know, however you want to kind of break it down or whatever. But it's like, I don't go to the doctor as much as I should because it costs money and I don't want to, to you know what I mean? And I have to balance medical costs versus other costs, right? And so it's like, you hear people, oh, we got the greatest healthcare system in the world, baby. And it's like, well, I guess if you can afford it, right? Like, right. And so it's like, is that freedom? If I cannot afford the best medicines in the world, then I'm effectively prevented from accessing them, right? And that's not freedom. And so back to your original question, I just think the right wing is very concerned. I mean, that's why they love cars. That's why car culture is so big in right wing circles, because the car is the ultimate. I get in the car and I go where I want. If I want to go left, if I want to go right, if I want to go 90, I'm doing it. You know, and it's fucking trains. That's communist trains. We're all going. And it's, yeah, they hate public transit because you're on someone else's schedule, right? And you have to stop for other people's stops, right? In your car, you don't. And so I think there's this tension in the conservative mind that like, I have to have less for other people to have more. I have to have less freedom for other people to have these other kinds of freedoms. I don't want to have less freedom. I, I want to maximize my individual freedom at the expense of collective freedom. So that's why it is such a ideology of like dominance and an ideology of, of strength and who's strong and deserves, you know, so much of conservative ideology is like there's a limited pie of freedom and only the strongest deserve the biggest pieces of it and everybody else has to make do. And I don't agree. I don't like that. <laughs> 
Right. And so it's someone else getting freedom for to access healthcare, you're having to give up some of your privilege. And so it's it's like take from the rich, give to the poor. No way. <laughs> That's communism. And so it's so much of a right-wing content nowadays, it's just railing against the government constantly. And Prager you does this quite a bit. And and so their definition of freedom would be quite the opposite. It's like get rid of the government. But I love how in your video you critiqued corporate control. And how that's probably a lot worse and less free. Yeah, conservatives are obsessed with this boogeyman of the government agent watching everything you do. They're obsessed with this vision of like sci-fi dystopia where, you know, brave new world type stuff where government bureaucrats dictate your whole life. And then they completely cede all human autonomy to like five unelected tech bros who inherited half their money from their parents and have no oversight. You know, like at least the government, theoretically, you get to vote if you're not gerrymandered all to hell. Theoretically, there's at least a modicum of voting power or share in how governments are organized or whatever. But corporations have, you know, oh, it's a free market. You can vote with your dollars. Really? There's one cable company, maybe two in my area. I don't get to vote with my dollars. There's two trash companies that service my area here in Louisville, Kentucky. One of them's horrible and one of them's super expensive. It's not freedom. Like, I can't vote with my dollar because I cannot afford to hire the waste management company that doesn't suck. And it's fascinating to me that they want total corporate control of their lives, except for the government, which they want to have total police surveillance control over their lives, which is just a baffling inversion to me of like, well, we want small government except for the unaccountable dudes with guns and a limitless surveillance powers. Those ones, we want more of those. And Back the blue, yeah. When I was a cop, like, right-wingers freaking loved cops except for like the weird fringe sovereign citizen movement. And obviously it's because right-wingers knew what police are really there to do, which is to... <laughs> to hassle their ideological enemies and hassle the people that they find undesirable. So, like, I get it, but it, it does expose a certain hypocrisy. On that point, do you think that they're actually consciously aware of this? Because I feel like a lot of the ones that I know, they tend to think that they're actually being benign and fair and that it's not about targeting a particular person. I think because as people more on the left now, we are more willing to acknowledge systemic issues that cause crime. Like, I think in a couple of your videos, you've talked about, like, what causes crime to be generated. Because when you're talking about maximizing personal freedom, all I could think of is that by maximizing personal freedom in this way, you're disenfranchising so many people that they're going to start causing more crime, which means you're actually having to suffer that as an individual. But that inherently is taking a perspective that it's not going to generate crime, that crime is in itself just a character flaw, right? What do you think about this? Yeah, if I'm steel manning conservatism, I think the idea goes like, hey, there's a society that has rules. These rules are there to keep you safe, keep your arms and legs inside the car. You know, like these rules were made by smart people who just want everybody to like get along and be safe. So as long as you follow the rules, you don't got nothing to worry about. And so the police are there to enforce the rules. So as long as you follow the rules, the police can't slash won't hassle you. Ergo, people that are being hassled by the police must not be following the rules. And so I think in the most generous version of the conservative mindset, they really do believe that there is this shared set of American values, you know, whatever that means. There's this shared set of values. And if only these criminal people would just stop doing crimes, then they would stop having run-ins with the police. And that's a nice fantasy. And it, it sounds great on paper. It just isn't 
real. Like it's just not true. And I think part of my big awakening as I started to leave conservatism and come leftward was in starting to realize that all of these things in society that are social constructs that, you know, we talk about gender being a social construct, you know, money is a social construct. Crime is a social construct. Like there's no such thing as objective crime that exists at the molecular physics level, right? Like <laughs> crime is something that we invented yeah. and, and crime is something that is socially constructed and is in the process of always being socially constructed and the concept of law and order and peace. You know, these are all social constructs that a few people in society or a in-group in society is constructing. And so I think what conservatives don't understand or don't want to understand or choose not to understand is that, yes, there are a set of rules that were constructed by a few people specifically to ease the path of some at the expense of a harder path for others. And so the people whose paths are being made more difficult by these social constructs don't want to participate in them or are butting up against them or have been so thoroughly dehumanized that they don't feel a share in the society. And so why would they follow society's rules if society treats them like garbage? It's the thing I talk about with people who don't think felons should have the right to vote after they get out of prison. You know, I say, so what you're telling me is that a guy breaks the social contract. That's what they well, he broke the social contract. You throw him in a dark hole, you take away everything from him, and then when he gets out, you make it really difficult for him to get a job, and then you tell him that he can't vote. So you're basically telling this guy that he is not part of society anymore. You have turned this man into a ghost because of a crime that he committed 20 years ago or whatever. Why on earth would he care about following your rules or respecting your norms or making life pleasant for you when you have so thoroughly unpersoned this man and told him that there's no hope for him to ever regain humanity in your eyes or in the eyes of the state? So why shouldn't he keep robbing banks, robbing stores, stealing? stealing cars, whatever it was. Like, what does he care? Yeah, going more extreme even. Yeah, what does he have to lose? You've given him no hope and nothing to gain and nothing to hold on to and no share in society. So what does he care, right? Yeah, no path to redemption. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, you take away someone's freedom. And it's kind of like in counseling is when you when you try to tell someone what to do and you take away their autonomy, they react and do the opposite. Like I do addiction counseling. <laughs> if I showed up and said, you know, you should probably just stop doing drugs. <laughs> They're like, what? You know, it doesn't work. And kind of on a societal level, we take away a marginalized group's freedom. They don't get to be free because they are kind of bad and the construct of crime kind of targets them disproportionately, take away their freedom. They're going to come out, oh, yay, I'm reformed, you know. And that's the idea of the prison system historically. Like the reformatory was very Catholic and try to discipline them and very religious. In reality, they don't come out that way, you know. And you lived it. You dealt with these very difficult, you said in your video, like, real hardcore criminals, like repeatedly. Yeah, I mean, I've run into some pretty dangerous people often. I worked weekend graveyards most of my career in Los Angeles County and the nice part of Los Angeles County. And I ran into, I mean, we had, you know, Mexican mafia hitmen and all kinds of characters out there and, you know, hardcore drug dealers and all that stuff. And one thing I tell people a lot is having worked with this community and worked with these people for so long, this is not a fun life. You know, maybe some of the kids that are 17 and 18 that are just starting to get into the gang life, there's a kind of allure to to it and a kind of a thrill, you know, like joining the military or something, you know, it's people you admire, your older brothers are in a gang, you admire it. But like, I would be with people that were struggling with addiction, you know, in their 50s and 60s, I would 
deal with people that were burglarizing and shoplifting and stealing cars in their 50s and 60s. These were not happy people. Conservatives always say like, uh, they just want an easy ride. That's why they steal. They're just looking for an easy ride. I'm like, have you ever lived by stealing? It is not easy. This is not an easy life. It's not fun. There's no stability. There's no security. You're just constantly on the edge of survival moment to moment. Like it is not fun. So it's like, you really have to ask yourself, like, why would somebody be a 50-year-old car thief? Why would somebody be a 60-year-old burglar with arthritic hands picking locks? Like, this is not a life that anybody wants, right? So there must be some other factor pushing people into this. And these people that are 50 and 60, these people that have been living this lifestyle for so long, having these experiences for so long, they've been arrested 5, 10, 15 times. Why didn't it work? They've been beaten up by the cops 5, 10, 15, 20 times. Why didn't that deter them? You know, why is that not acting as a crime deterrence? Either these people are so vile to their core being that they can never be reformed, or the things that we do that we think are reforming them don't actually work. <laughs> well, that's an unfortunate dichotomy, and it is one where I think we're kind of coming face-to-face with the backing philosophy these days being fascism, essentially. These are undesirables. These are bad people. And the, yeah, you're right. It doesn't work. So we have to do a final solution, basically. I mean, they're not out and out saying that quite yet. The mask isn't fully off, except for, I guess, at certain points. But yeah, we are coming up into that. Another thing I was thinking when listening to this is that we all kind of actually have experience with these vulnerable populations because you guys in establishments or institutions that are actually a bit more similar than people would know, which is the mental health institution. And I think that rose out of prisons and kind of penal institutions because like they were just like, okay, these people are broken. We need to do something about it. Me, my background was working with the homeless at a supportive housing project. So do you know much about how mental health kind of emerged from prison systems? You know, I did a video a couple years ago. I was in the midst of a big run of police abolition videos. And one of the things that I kept saying was a lot of these people that we just shove into a hole and just don't want to think about them, they need mental health care. And one of my members of my audience kind of hit me up on the side and they're like, hey, you know, have you looked into the origins of psychiatry and stuff like that? Because the things that you're talking about with prisons, that's what they're doing to people in psych hospitals too. And you seem to be just saying, oh, we're going to throw people in the hospital hole and not the prison hole. And I was like, what? (laughs) Because several members of my family have had stays at mental health facilities for different reasons and different things. And we've had positive outcomes, I guess I would say, from the mental health industrial complex or whatever you want to call it, psychiatric industrial complex. So I've always had kind of a positive opinion of it, but we were a middle-class white family. So of course we had... (laughs) Of course, we had positive experiences with things. But so yeah, I I did a video because I looked into it and I was like, oh my God, like they were right. Like the origins of the kind of the the psychiatric industry aren't great and repeat a lot of the same. You have the modern prison system kind of coming out of reconstruction and, you know, the fugitive slave patrols turned into the police departments during reconstruction. You know, we have the black code. Speaking of social constructs, we invent the concept of vagrancy because all of these freed slaves were hanging out. So, well, hey, now it's a crime to hang out. Back to jail with you. And by the way, the jail is going to sell you back to the plantations. So we have the modern prison system emerging out of this slavery system. And then you learn about psychiatric concepts like drapetomania, which is the psychological illness of being a runaway slave. 
<laughs> and you, know, so you start to learn that the same kinds of ideas that inform the prison system inform how we socially construct mental illness and the concept of health and things like that. So it's not something I'm an expert in, but I did do a video on it a couple of years ago because I got that comment that people were like, hey, you know, you should really look into this. And it did cause me to look into like alternate modes of doing mental health and alternatives to, you know, being committed to a psychiatric hospital and things like that. Right. And I'm curious, hospitals referred to with a positive experience, are these, I don't know much about how the system works. Are they publicly funded or are they by insurance or private pay? Like what's the situation you're referring to? I don't know. Cause I mean, a lot of stuff happened with family members when I was a kid. And so my understanding of it is weak. When I was a police officer, we did have state funded facilities that, you know, when we would take people on a 5150 psych evaluation hold, we would take them to facilities that were funded by the state or the city. So I know that those exist. I'm guessing my family members were in more of like a private type thing. Okay. That's what I was thinking might be the case. Yeah, again, nobody in my family was sort of taken away in the straitjacket or anything like that. Yeah, because we had the money to pay. <laughs> we got treated like human beings. That was the purpose of asking that question was what situation was that? And again, so yeah, it's if you don't have the money, then well, you're not treated like a human. And so I mean, so many of the people that I dealt with in my time in law enforcement had some form of mental illness, sometimes many overlapping forms of mental illness layered on top of just like massive trauma that would ruin anybody. And these people were just carrying around this burden of ultra trauma that was untreated, undignified, unspoken, you know, they didn't even have the lexicon to speak. I didn't even have the lexicon to talk about it at that time because it, you know, just wasn't how we were trained. And so, yeah, we would take them to these state facilities on 72 hour holds and all the doctors want to do is get them out of there. And so it was like a conveyor belt of just like, get him in. Hey, what's up with you? Do you want to kill yourself? Yes, no. Okay, great. Sign here. Here's some pills. Get out there. And I remember we had people that would beat us back to the city. <laughs> you know, we would take them to the hospital and the doctors would kick them out the back door and they would take the bus and get back to the city faster than we got back because we were doing paperwork in the parking lot. <laughs> and they would just shove, shove a bag of pills in their hands. And it's like, so you're taking people that are unhoused. Do not have good coping strategies. And you're going, here's a bottle of pills. Make good choices. Back at the house you don't have, you know, and so like the pills get lost or they <laughs> don't take them right or they, you know, whatever. And it's just, it's such a hopeless feeling. In fact, if I'll just to continue my monologue here, one of my training officers was telling me when we're just driving around, you have time to kind of just talk all night. We were talking about mental health, you know, people that we'd run into and there was a guy that he knew that they called him the wolf man. And he used to ride the public transit. He was one of the public transit cops in Los Angeles and LAPD. And there was this one of the regulars that they would see every night. They called him the wolf man because he was all disheveled and had big bushy beard and big bushy hair. And he was always screaming and yelling and causing a ruckus. And they'd beat him up, take him on a psych hold. The guy'd be out in three days, lather, rinse, repeat over and over and over again. But he told me one day he was getting onto one of the LA's subways or the bus or something. And he saw the wolf man, but he wasn't screaming and yelling. He was sitting calmly and he walked up to them and he said, Hey officers, I know you and I've had some trouble in the past and I just wanted to apologize. And my training officer, Mike, he was like, wow, you know, okay. Yeah, no, don't worry about it. I guess. And he said, let me explain to you. I used to be a doctor. I had a family and I got into this mental health thing and I didn't take it seriously or I didn't really understand what to do about it. I don't know if it was schizophrenia or something like that. 
But basically, he had a mental health episode that spiraled and spiraled. He started self-medicating with drugs and then lost his family, lost his home. And now he can't get out of this cycle. And he told my training officer, Mike, he said, you know, next time you see me, I'm probably going to be a mess again. He's like, I'm watching myself from back in my brain. I'm like, I'm sorry. It's just, I, I, it's nothing personal. I just can't control myself and I'm so sorry. And the guy was like, yeah, don't worry about it. And, he's, and Mike said, next time he saw the guy, he was totally in a you know manic state and screaming and yelling and trying to fight. And we just talked about how that kind of like haunted us. The idea that this guy just lost everything was trapped in his own mind and no one was helping him. And if he had gotten the right pills, he gets lucid. So like if you just got this guy in a stable environment with some stability and some help and some compassion, this dude could have his life back and we just won't. We just won't do it. I'd like to tie that back to freedom because I can see a path here. So from what you're saying, it's basically like this is a vicious cycle this guy can't escape from because the system won't provide him the support he needs to get straight again. And I think a lot of people, it's kind of like this something I saw during the pandemic and I felt myself doing it at times too. You see somebody who gets the disease and you're like, oh shit, like, well, what were they doing? You start investigating me like, well, I don't do those things, right? So I'm fine. I'm safe. And similarly, I think one of the things that is another theme in that story you were saying is that like we medicalize healthy reactions to to a system that's breaking us. And we're like, okay, you're depressed, you're anxious. Well, here's some pills. Shut up and go back to your cubicle and continue doing inhuman things. And I don't think people realize that like there's a theory called the I think it's a diathesis stress model, which is we have a genetic propensity towards getting certain disorders. And with stress, stress causes us to reach different breaking points. One will be maybe more of a temporary break. If you reach too much stress, which a temporary break if in the system as you're describing it, you can have a break that you didn't expect to happen. You don't know why you're doing it. You're just watching yourself as this man was just going off. And then the system then further traumatizes you by victimizing you for reacting that way. And you're not able to ever get back. And I don't think people realize how it can be for many of us until it happens to them, right? Yeah, that was something a lot of people in the comments on my psychiatry video, that was something that they talked about where they were in crisis and the facility that they were taken to or went to to receive support for being in crisis totally jacked them up, totally took that opportunity and made it so much more of a mess <laughs> than it needed to be and then caused this cycle. And you're right. So now you have somebody who's traumatized by the mental health care system in mental health crisis having trauma responses they're being further dehumanized i was just hearing these stories about people that like could not get out you know and, and so yeah when i think about freedom and like you know america freest country in the world baby you know we always talk about like upward mobility like in america that's where you can come with five dollars and a dream and you could be president one day which is complete nonsense but like that's the story that we tell about america is that with a little gumption and a little hard work you can pull yourself up out of anything and make yourself into anything and the older i get and the more people that i talk to i'm finding so many people that get stuck in cycles and ruts and crisis and in trauma and they can never get out and they try so hard and they work so hard and not only do they keep getting stuck in these cycles they keep getting their heart broken and I kind of want to make a video on this one day I don't know quite how to talk about it without sounding weird but like the concept of heartbreak as this American I don't know not uniquely American phenomenon but like I know so many people who have had their heart broken by the world if that makes sense and it like it really gets people off track it makes it really difficult to get back on track when you keep getting your heart broken it makes people give up right like it makes people 
stop trying. And it's just so sad. And I don't know what to do about it. But yeah, like when I think about freedom from like just the freedom from this constant heartbreak of like, sorry, no one's looking out for you. Sorry, this was your problem. Sorry, nobody's going to fix it for you. And it's like, that's no liberty I can respect, right? Like the liberty to suffer in silence, you know, to (laughs) to suffer in isolation. Wow. What a freedom. Yeah. To be run into the ground by corporations. Steve, I feel like you might have a tie into this with country music and probably themes in hip hop, I imagine, which you guys both have an overlap in. Can you think of anything to do with that? What are you thinking? I do enjoy country country music. music, I'm just thinking like tear in my beer, wife left me, dog died (laughs) and my truck's like broken down, like that kind of thing. Cause it's very much reminiscent of having your heart broken by society who's just going to let you rot, right? Yeah. Whiskey lullaby. That's got to be the saddest (laughs) country song ever. Well, there is. I just did a recent video on this. There's a hip hop guy that I wasn't super familiar with named Dax, who is starting to get into the, he's a hip hop guy that seems to be starting to try to like get into the country music market, kind of like Lil Nas X did with that Old Town Road or whatever. But his video, his music video that came across to me was him talking about masculinity and manhood and how tough it was to be a man. And I did a video on it because I thought his view of masculinity was fairly toxic to use an overworn phrase or whatever. I didn't think his view of masculinity was super helpful, but he was genuinely having his heart broken as a man feeling super alienated and like feeling this deep societal alienation, feeling this deep being adrift in society and feeling like men, you know, couldn't get respect and couldn't find comfort and couldn't find compassion. You know, one of the things that he brought up is like, he said, you know, unconditional love is only for women and dogs, you know, and for all my problems with his views of masculinity, like I do see, you know, and it's kind of interesting. You said hip hop and country music because he hit that crossover of like, I think there are a lot of men out there that are experiencing this heartbreak and aren't sure what it means. And they're turning to these Andrew Tate douchebags to put a story around it. That is a bad story and an unhelpful story, but, I think you are seeing a lot of these, you know, country Western, you know, you think of the rugged manly man out on the farm and, and in hip hop, I know in the black community, and I know this because a lot of black men critiqued me in the comments to this video. They said, Hey, well, you're a white guy. You don't understand how tough it is to be a black man right now. We are yearning for something better and we're not finding it. So I, I do think there's a through line there for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. I guess it seems adjacently related to something that came up earlier before you just finished on that point. So I don't want it to seem insensitive. I've also been going through a heartbreak and suffering this past like half a year, basically. And you can feel the pull of these more toxic ideologies. And I think the only difference between becoming like cynical and being taken down like those toxic pathways is some level of insight and strength to face the insights. Because like to me, I was saying like pain can either lead you to cynicism or wisdom, but it was only through to wisdom if you're able to process that pain and not give into it. Because maybe, Steve, we can jump over to Eric Fromm, because I know that that's directly related to this, that we have been given, I mean, we've been told you're absolutely free and it's your fault if you fucked it up, basically. And these guys are being told that and constantly, if you're a man, you should be able to figure it out, right? And it's all these other groups that must be at fault for it. And that's where Eric Fromm's book, Escape from Freedom, comes in, because the appeal of fascism is that it's not your fault, actually. These people are taking it from you. Steve, do you want to elaborate a bit? You know, better than me. Yeah, yeah. As you said, people gravitate toward Andrew Tate as kind of putting a narrative around their pain that's like a strongman narrative. And there's a lot of anger. And I noticed that in consuming conservative content, Jordan Peterson just increasingly angry in his videos and just other right-wing commenters. Just There's a lot of anger. It's almost stressful to listen to. Almost? (laughs) 
you're a little more like I guess it's hard to stress yeah. but, <laughs> but like I'm listening to this Ben Shapiro or whatever I just I like to keep an ear on all different types of commentary and I'm just like oh it's such tension I <laughs> and when we talk about counseling as anger and what it serves as, it's often a secondary emotion. And anger often is covering up and protecting more vulnerable emotions like sadness, fear, shame. And so in these men you're referring to, they may be in a spot of feeling that kind of heartbreak and that tender emotion. And then the anger as a secondary emotion and latching onto strongman narratives. I mean, the whole Donald Trump phenomenon is like a, a massive version of that. But Eric Fromm was writing in the 1940s about fascism coming from this drive for us to escape freedom because freedom is, is a burden that you feel kind of untethered, unrooted, isolated in the modern world kind of produced these conditions where people just wanted something. They didn't have their, their religious beliefs. They were working in a factory situation without meaning. The community was disintegrating. And so that's kind of the draw to escape from this kind of oppression of freedom and then fascism being kind of the way people do that. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting you're talking about like this, you know, rage that we hear from right wing commentators because like when I was a conservative, my favorite, my top favorite appointment listening guy was Dennis Prager. And this might shock you to hear this. The reason at the time was because he was funny and he was chill and he was nice and he was obsessed with happiness. What? <laughs> I'm telling you. He used to have, All I know him is Prager U. I know. I know. Every Friday, the last hour of his program on Fridays was the happiness hour. And he would talk about as it was your duty to be happy, to find joy in the world and to spread happiness and to like seek like that. That was like a moral good was to be happy. And I see him now and he is the most crusty, salty, angry, just complete asshole and like just miserable. The Dennis Prager that I see now on Prager U is miserable compared to the guy that he was 50 years ago and it's disheartening to me and, and like I feel like I'm going crazy when I tell people he didn't used to be like this like <laughs> he has a whole book on being happy and why how it's important to be happy but yeah I think so much of what is happening in society and in capitalism and neoliberalism everything's crumbling everything's just not working like right like things just aren't working right anymore and what used to only affect the bottom rungs of society the floodwaters are getting higher and higher and suddenly guys making sixty thousand dollars a year are experiencing the same alienation and the same precarity you know and then eighty thousand dollars you know what i mean like you can feel this doom rising and it's so important for us to have a story why is this happening and so to your point, Phil, about these two paths that you can take, cynicism or wisdom, like to me, it comes down to like the flattering story or the complicated story, because so much of right wing fascism now is a flattering narrative. Hey, man, you're strong. You are a strong man that has been made weak by, you know, them. Like if it weren't for them, man, if it weren't for them, man, you would be, you know, and, and it's just like, it's such a flattering narrative. Like, yeah, I am a deposed king. What was that quote? Like Americans all believe that they're temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Like it's just such a flattering narrative. And so if you're somebody that is, I think, suffering from insecurity, when I look back at my conservatism and my conservative years, it was marked by this like insecurity. When I look at my cop years, the times that I treated people very, very bad were times that I was feeling insecure and feeling 
unmanly or feeling out of control or feeling like I was, you know, just not feeling big, I guess, you know. And so those were the times that I was the worst version of myself is those times I was dealing with this insecurity. And I think so much of society is making everybody just feel really insecure because so many people are, quote unquote, following all the rules. So many people are doing all the right things. They're putting their money in savings and they've got their 401k and they stop at stop signs and life just isn't working out. People can't afford homes anymore. Rent keeps going up. Groceries are too expensive. College is a nightmare. Childcare is impossible to find. And then a freaking pandemic comes through, you know what I mean? It shuts everything down. And so I think people are just feeling like I'm doing everything right. Why isn't it working? And the flattering answer is because of them. And the complicated answer is because of all of us and this thing that we've built together. We built it bad and we could build a new thing you know, a la David Graeber, these are all things that we constructed and we can construct new things, but that's a really longer answer than, well, it was those guys that did it. And also scary. Yeah. Because like right now we're at the fork as I see it, at like late stage capitalism, as some people call it, where the fork is between at least restoring and maybe extending socialization, socialism, I guess, which is something we in Canada enjoy a bit more of, but it's being chipped away here as well. Or fascism, because like both of them will economically kind of be prosperous, but one through mass amounts of destruction and death. And what I find particularly ironic about this current twist is that the original fascists got in by saying that they were fighting against the commies. The commies are coming, they're going to take away all your stuff. So we got to give the state and the industry all the powers we can or else we'll, we'll be commies. So we got to do that. And ironically, because the Nazis were national socialists, they post-war almost immediately started tying the national socialists with communism and socialism and just kind of bundling them all together. And now that we have like people pushing for socialism and saying we need to get more supports for every person, they're like, look, the communists again are coming and we got to we gotta become fascist again. So it's like using fascism but labeling it as communism to restore fascism in different parts of the country. It's insane. Exactly. And, and before we continue, I do have to bounce out of oh, here. You? you two continue talking. <laughs> okay. All right, bye, Steve. <laughs> have fun. I do have to, I do have to run. Okay. See bye. It was nice to meet you. Okay. Cop stuff, actually. Steve wanted to focus specifically on the left-right concepts of freedom, but I kind of want to talk a bit more about gangs and cops' view of freedom and that quote, I had to pull it up, that I sent to you from his dissertation. I wish he was here for that conversation about the dirty, long-haired hippies as every civvy is. <laughs> about the, uh, if you're around army guys, every civvy is a dirty, long-haired, bone-idle, slack-dope-smoking civvy. Yeah. That's it. So to continue that quote, every one of them, he can grow his hair. He can be fucking bone idle, smoke dope, perfect example of freedom. That's for sure. He's idle. Fuck is he idle? And he'll never be as badass as me, but shit is he free? This was from Steve's PhD where he was interviewing a veteran about it. Do you have any reactions to that? You know, it's funny. I mean, I don't know if my reaction to it is super germane per se, but like the feeling of this quote takes me back to the kind of camaraderie that we had in law enforcement of like, we were the only ones who really like got it. You know what I mean? Like we were the only guys that could really see society for what it was. And everybody else was this kind of NPC. So there's a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. who's a police trainer. You'll like this. He trains cops to not be afraid to kill. He has a book called On Killing and one called On Combat. His little weird little group is called Killology. But Dave Grossman firmly believes that police officers are too afraid to kill. So um, yeah, he's a real creep. But he has a very, very famous and very, very, very influential 
article that he wrote called On Sheep, Wolves, and Sheepdogs. And his whole thesis is that, you know, society's got the sheep, who are the regular civilians, they got the wolves that prey on the civilians, and you got the sheepdogs, which is the cops in the military. And that the sheep are so stupid that they think that the sheepdogs look like the wolves, so the sheep don't like the sheepdogs, but the sheepdogs selflessly protect the sheep, even from themselves, yada yada. But yeah, that's how we saw ourselves, is like, we were the ones doing the real work that really understood society, and everybody else was a sheep, and they were too dumb to know what was going on. And yeah, we would talk about civilians like that. Yeah, it must be nice. It must be nice to just blindly walk through life. The fuck is he idle and he'll never be as badass as me. But yeah, we would talk about how like the cops came and do nothing anymore. We're getting sued by the people and city style. councils. You know, we could really clean up the city if we weren't being hamstrung by freaking regulations. This is just dumb. You know, in a society that's already consumed by in-group, out-group stuff, police are like the ultimate in-group. And so, yeah, you know, it's just, it's something where I think police officers really don't think that normal society is like capable of being free in a responsible way. The way that we used to talk about civilians, they just can't help themselves. You know what I mean? Like there were children, right? Like, and it's like we had to be the adults in the room and we knew best. And that's why we could break the law because we knew when it was cool to do it. We knew when it was okay, but civilians didn't. You know, we were experts in the law. Ergo, we could break it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. But actually, hearing you talk about that reminds me of, like, it's just something that was pointed out by, I think the podcast is called You Are Good. It's a very leftist feelings podcast about movies. And in that one, I can't remember her name. Her name was, first name was Sarah. She talked about how that's a common theme in terms of, like, mobster movies where, like, we are the guys that really know what's going on. And we're the ones that are keeping our community safe because the cops are failing us, which apparently is something in, in criminology. I think of a theory about gangs rising when the cops start failing those communities. And then I guess ultimately, they too fall victim to the whole idea of like we are the authority here so we have to fund ourselves somehow right so we're going to start doing these more illicit and profitable things that are destroying our community so it seems like it's I mean it always <laughs> leads me back to the more I read about anarchic philosophy the more you're like it's power man like it's power and wealth and when the power that comes with that that corrupts like it gives you basically brain damage it makes you sociopathic to preserve your status. Yeah. If pushed, I'd describe myself as like an anarcho-communist because I like the way communists talk about the economy and I like the way anarchists talk about power. And it's just so true. Like when you are given power over another person, it's strange. It's weird. And it is alluring and addicting in certain ways. And it becomes, I remember like when I first started in law enforcement, I got in trouble a lot in training because I wasn't dominant enough. I was seen as too meek and mild and too weak. And they would tell me, they'd pull me aside and they would say, you know, Phil, they're going to eat you alive out there if they think you're weak. You got to really step up. You got to show these people. These people don't, they only respect one thing. You got to, you know, so they really pushed me and pushed me and pushed me and turned me into a real fucking asshole. <laughs> they turned me like that was always in me. Right. But like, they really encouraged me to like, let that fly. And so like the times I would get most mad at people in law enforcement is when I would tell them to do something and they would blow me off. And when they would blow me off in front of other people and it would get super steamed, like, how dare you? And like, sometimes I was in the wrong, right? Like sometimes I was telling people something and I didn't have the right to tell them to do that. Or sometimes I would boss people around just to prove that I could. Like sometimes gangsters or just anybody, you know, they'd be mouthing off and I would go, Hey man, stand up. And the guy would stand up and I go, okay, sit down. He would sit back down. I go, you get it? You get it? I can make you do whatever I want. Right. Like, and there's like this thrill from doing that. And like, I'll never forget the first time, I'll never forget the first time I was in training and we were kind of wrestling around with a drunk guy that didn't want to cooperate 
you know, he wasn't fighting. He wasn't dangerous. He was just non-compliant. And for some reason, I just, I slapped him and I got praised by my sergeant. I got praised by my training officer. I said, good job, man. You show that guy who's boss, right? Because I just slapped him for no, like he wasn't fighting us. I slapped him to quote unquote, put him in his place or whatever. And I got like praised and like all the guys were like slapping him. There we go. That's what we want to see, man. Like, and that's when the guys really started to let me into the in group kind of thing like that and started to treat me like an equal. And so like, I'll never forget just that thrill of being like, oh, like that was kind of cool. Like I just assaulted this guy and not only did I not suffer a consequence, I was praised. I received a benefit. And like in law enforcement, that happens so many times where you dominate somebody else and you are rewarded for it or at least never punished for it. And it really creates this perverse mindset in your brain that like that you're allowed to do that, right? Like all of a sudden I became the kind of guy who was entitled to just do this to people. And like, that's not how I was raised. Like I was, you know what I mean? And like, if you had asked me 10 years prior, like I would have said, oh no, that's terrible. But like all of a sudden I felt entitled to just push people around, to dehumanize and belittle them. Sometimes when we were bored, we would wind people up just so that they would fight us so that we could get in a fight because we were bored. Like just real dark stuff, man, like really dark stuff. But like it does change the way your brain works or the way your mind works or, you know, if there is a difference, you know, it, it does. It really changes your thought patterns. Right. And I remember towards the end of my career, I don't remember what the inciting incident was, but I got really mad on duty. I got really steamed. I was sitting in my car, I was all steamed because I didn't get my way about something. And I remember just sitting there for a minute. I'm going like, I'm a really angry guy. Like for whatever, somehow I just caught myself in the mirror just right. And I was like, man, I'm really angry. Like, and it bothered me. It bothered me that I was capable of such petty anger. I'm like, where did this come from? I used to be nice. Like I used to be a nice guy and I'm just angry and I hurt people and I'm yelling at people all the time. And, and so my last couple of years in law enforcement, I really made an effort to try to like chill out a little bit, but my brain is still busted to this day. Like I'm quick to anger if I'm feeling out of control. I, I get, you know, like you were saying, anger is a secondary emotion. For me, it's when I'm feeling helpless or when I'm feeling disrespected or not listened to. Like it sparks this, like, you know, and it just made to feel small. Yeah. If I feel small, I puff up real big and, I, and it just shoots up at me in, in like scary and pointless ways. You know, and I look back at myself, I'm like, that was dumb. Like, what was that about? Like, I didn't need, didn't need to get steamed over that. But like, yeah, really, I do really think that that domination that I used to be able to have over people really changed the way that my brain works. And I don't like it. Yeah. Well, I wanted to thank you for having the courage to talk about this publicly because like a lot of that, I think people may be quick to condemn, but I think it is a, a cultural thing. I want to drop just a, a quote that came to mind while you were speaking. It's a very nerdy quote because it's from Skyrim, but it's, <laughs> what is better to be born good or to overcome your evil nature through great effort? And I think I honestly, I would say the latter because the first, like they can be tempted possibly and possibly corrupted still. And they haven't learned the path back. And I was just on another podcast called the Scuttlebutt podcast. And they were asking me basically whether I thought people were good or evil or whether we could get rid of certain things like that. And my answer is generally, like you were saying earlier, that we're all people. So you've lived in various parts of the country and you've had various roles in society. I have 
lived in various countries, China for four years. And I got really interested in political science when I was living in Australia, just before that for six months. And I mean, it was like ripe to study that stuff. It was like my background's in psychology. And then I got into sociology because of Steve's background. And then I started studying political science and going to China was great. It's very fertile soil to examine those things because really it is exactly what you're saying that we are all basically, we have, we're all human and we all have the same foibles and our wisdom has not evolved since like the Greeks right? Or any time, a long, long time ago. And to me, the role of culture is because they were asking, like, how would we get to a certain point of goodness? And like, how might AI craft that and our overlords? And I was just like, I think we'll never get rid of, unless like genetic engineering or some crazy sci-fi stuff. I don't think we'll get rid of these things. But I think that Behind the Bastards, another podcast pointed out that there are ways a society has suppressed our worst natures. Are you familiar with that podcast at all? Yes, I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. So in that, they talk about a story called, I don't remember the details, but it was, he called it The Shaming of a Meat, which is about a tribe in Africa I think, where an anthropologist was studying them and integrated and living with them for a while and he wanted to celebrate Thanksgiving. So he bought the fattest cow they had and was going to like celebrate and give part of it to everybody to like show how you would celebrate back home in America. And so a woman comes up to him and asks him like, so what what are you planning to do with that again? Like, how are you celebrating this holiday? And he's like, oh, I'm going to slaughter the cow and everyone's going to get to eat from that and it's going to be a great celebration. She's like, oh, that's skin and bones. There's nothing on that thing. Like, it's garbage. I was afraid that was what we were planning because it's not going to work out. And throughout the next little while, people kept coming up to him and razzing him and basically telling him like you're an idiot like what do you think you're doing with this cow and eventually he was writing in his journal and this is a guy who's been embedded with various groups and has dealt with a lot of stuff and even he was like why are they being ungrateful like what's going on with these people like i've been only been nice to them and then it came out that like anytime i think it was the first time that men having the rite of passage going to get their first kill whatever it is whatever they bring back is going to be put down so that it suppresses their ego and keeps them realizing that they're not better than everybody else and that they can't just start like lording over everyone and i think that's apparently where like the trope the that podcast behind the bastards theorizes that that's where like the whole matriarch who gives everyone shit constantly (laughs) comes from because it's kind of keeping people in tow and like he sees fascism as a social disease, like a social cancer that spikes up because we haven't been doing that. Do you have any thoughts on this or reactions? Yeah, that sounds really interesting. It rings true to me. Like the thing I struggle with sometimes is like we talk about these like systemic issues, you know, and there's a, I think it's a Michael Brooks quote where he says, you know, we should be kind to individuals and ruthless to systems, which I, and I love that. And I try to like live by that, you know, especially like talking to people online. If somebody will make you mad online, I don't want to like dunk on them. And, and I'm like, and I try to remember like, okay, that's an individual individuals that's a systemic person but systems are made of individuals who are perpetuating the system so when i think of that story and i think about like yeah i think we can build cultures of compassion cultures of community i mean we, we see it we see elsewhere in the world cultures that are focused on taking care of their elders in a way that we typically don't down in the United States. And like, we see cultures of sharing that we don't see in the United States. Like, and even within the United States, within certain communities, like we see cultures of togetherness and community and and communal organizing that are not repeated, you know, at large and quote unquote, larger American culture. I guess I just wonder how scalable that is. Or is that something where we have to meet people's needs 
first and reduce scarcity before we can expect people, you know, to behave, quote unquote. I guess what comes first, like meeting the material needs and then building the culture around sustaining that? Or do you build the culture first so that you can meet the material needs? I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, it it like rings true. Like what you say rings true to me. I just, I wonder how you implement that in media res here in like the United States or in Canada, you know, wherever else, Australia. I would say it would probably have to be in tandem because like, how are you going to start changing the system and meeting needs if you don't change the culture? They would have to kind of go hand in hand, one screen, like dragging behind the other, I guess, or tied together. And like, I've thought a lot about systems and how to make things better. And I think the conclusion I always come back to is that like, supposing we avoid lock-in, as they call it in like sci-fi circles about like AI, just locking in certain values, it always requires some level of rejuvenation. Because like every system that you can think of starts off probably good. That's why it was became gaining favor generally. And then it eventually becomes corrupted over time. Like look at how Christianity is now, right? Like talk about what Jesus actually said. Amazing guy, had a lot of great values. The people that follow him today, little bit of ways from that, you know? Because I was talking to a friend, she's British and she's studying randomly just for fun. I think like Wiccanism and Druidism and a bunch of the stuff to do with that. And she's like, oh no, they're individualists. They don't believe in congregating like the Druids, I think. And so like they will never become like a problematic institution. And I was just like... (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely not going to be a group of people who's like, you know what? If, like we're being like subjugated by these groups. We should band together and have the power of that. And then off it spirals, right? But I think you're right that it's got to be uh, everything kind of moving together. Something else I wanted to ask you about and how maybe you can relate it to the U.S. system. In other countries, this is according to the book, The Dictator's Handbook. Great book, by the way. In that one, they talk about how in a lot of more developing or less developed nations, if you want to call us developed, honestly, they pay their cops less because they know that they will then be primed to be more corruptible. And if anybody tries to be like the tall poppy, as they would say, tall poppy syndrome, they'll be clipped. They don't want that person to be there. So if you're going to be upright, then they don't want you because they're all corrupt, then you got to be corrupt. And if you're all corrupt, then the system can then say, hey, do these things for us. You can pretend to be upright all the time, but we know that you're not. And we know you have to be corrupt or else you probably can't live off the salary. So I'm just curious what you think about that. Yeah, that was a huge problem in New Orleans and Louisiana here in the United States. They were the least paid police force. I think major municipal police force in the United States was uh, New Orleans PD. They were like the most corrupt one, you know, because they were getting paid poverty wages. Like police work, you know, for all of the dominance and prestige and whatever, it's not an easy job. You know, it's hard on your body. You're working graveyard shifts. You're working 12-hour shifts. A lot of people do want to fight you. <laughs> you know, it's it's a thankless job. You think about uh, thankless but it's a job that is hard on a body. And you see stressful things and and you see horrible things. I've seen lots of unforgettable, traumatic things in my career. And I was paid very handsomely (laughs) to see those things and to deal with that. And I think New Orleans PD was being paid I can't remember what it was at the time, you know, $25,000 a year, $30,000 a year, which is not nothing, but I was making my best year in law enforcement as a patrolman. I made $105,000 or something like that a year. I was mainly pulling in 80 to 90 in Southern California. You know, these guys were making a third or a fourth of what I was making. And yeah, they were corrupt as hell. (laughs) And you just have so much access to trouble as a cop. You know, you're, you're out by yourself or with a partner, but I worked alone, you know, you're out patting somebody down and you 
pull a baggie of drugs out of them. And they will be very grateful to you if you say, hey, how about I just confiscate this and you get out of here and you forget you ran into me. They will very gratefully forget that they ever saw you. And now you've got yourself a baggie of drugs and why shouldn't you sell it? Like, who cares? And that's not something I ever did, but you could see why people that were not making very much money would selling a baggie of drugs and then you do a big drug bust and now you've got a big brick of cocaine that you could sell. That happened in Los Angeles Police Department in the Rampart Division. The Rampart Division in the, I want to say late 90s and early 2000s were essentially a drug cartel. This division of Los Angeles Police Department turned into a drug dealing organization and they would confiscate drugs from drug dealers and then resell it. They would attack other drug dealers. They paralyzed a guy, a rival drug dealer, really bad dudes. And that was an LAPD, which they made pretty good money. And then you see this in Mexico on some of the border towns where the drug cartels are really strong. You know, the officers down there don't make very much money. And in all of these cases in New Orleans and in an LAPD and even where I worked, you did not want to be the goody two-shoes cop. <laughs> even where I worked, it was like unthinkable that you would narc on a fellow officer or rat them out or whatever, because it could be very dangerous for you to do that. In Los Angeles Police Department, whistleblowers have been killed. Quote unquote, rat officers have been killed in LAPD. Where I worked, if you were thought of as a rat or you weren't well liked, if you were calling for help over the radio, that help might take a long, long, long time to get there. That's why people ask me sometimes, well, shouldn't lefties become cops and change it from within? And I'm like, you can try if you're willing to risk your life as the one officer trying to make a change from within Los Angeles Police Department, go ahead. I don't think it's going to work out for you. I certainly wasn't willing to lose my life over ratting people out for stuff. So yeah, I do think that you run into this weird tension where it's like if you pay the cops too much, you've got guys making tons and tons of money that you've now taken away from the rest of the community. So we can't fund community programs because we got to pay our cops too much. If you pay them too little, they're just going to become another drug cartel in your town and now you've got a real problem. So yeah, it's it's tough. Yeah, that is a problem I've thought about. Like how much should they be paid? And it's like, I don't know, you could pin it to the median. I've heard people jokingly talk about how minimum wage and the maximum amount of rent you can demand should be directly tied, then cause landlords to fight the government, right. <laughs> which would be great. But I was wondering, what do you think of police unions? I know there are a thing that a lot of lefties, including myself, are not super fond of. So I'm curious what you see their role as in internal affairs and keeping things in order. Yeah, I mean, the point of a police union is like any union, which is to protect the constituents, right? Like to protect the working group. In this case, <laughs> people ask me like, well, aren't police unions, like you're pro-union about police unions. And I'm like, well, when the bosses want to break a strike, who do they call? They call the police. <laughs> Ergo, police unions and other labor unions are different things because the police unions protect the cops when the cops beat up all the rest of the workers, right? And we know that Amazon colluded with the police to try to break union organizing recently, all the way back to the coal companies in Kentucky and West Virginia and elsewhere in Appalachia, paid the Pinkertons to murder striking mining workers. Like all throughout American history, and I would presume Canadian history, big business, capital, uses cops to break strikes, break up labor organizing, and harass and intimidate workers. And the police unions only exist to protect those cops when they do that stuff. So yeah, I have no love or esteem for police unions as labor movement, because it's not a labor movement. It's a capital movement. Yeah. We referenced it a while ago. I don't remember which episode, but I think one person was doing research on police unions, and I think every 
every year that a police union was involved in a precinct, their number of deaths on just like mysterious deaths caused by cops just slowly climbed just year over year, especially people of color or just minorities in general, I would say. Speaking of the Pinkertons at that time, I think the Behind the Bastards, they did a couple episodes that are relevant to what you're talking about. I think they called it the Fed War, I think it was, which was Portland during the pandemic, which the mainstream media called like BLM riots. But it seemed like a protest against police brutality ended up becoming the police brutalizing people and then ended up being like a sort of mini civil war. And they also considered the railway strike, I think the one you're referring to as the second civil war for them because it was like massive battles of like thousands of people fighting. Do you have much to say on those events? Well, yeah, it's like, when you go back to like the Battle of Blair Mountain was one of the first times that bombs were dropped on American soil and it was by sheriffs dropping bombs on striking miners, right? Like we're talking about civil war, like we dropped bombs on striking workers. But yeah, even into the pandemic and it was the pandemic BLM protests that pushed me to become a police and prison abolitionist and actually pushed me to start making content about it. I was really trying when I first started my channel for the first year, I wasn't trying to be apolitical, but I was trying to be like subtle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was trying to be non-threatening. I was trying to be, hey, here's some interesting ideas that I had. Oh, isn't that something? And, and kind of trying to be like, you know, because there's so many content creators that are like screaming, yelling, here's what's wrong with society. You know, these guys are idiots. These guys are whatever. And so it's like, I wanted to be like kind of the calm antidote to that. Or not antidote, but when you were ready for calm, you come to my channel. And then I'm watching all the footage of these protests and I'm watching what the cops are doing and the cops are instigating and attacking and it was so many times people would say it's the police that are rioting and it's true like it's true what they were doing was and I recognized like it's remember I was talking about like you know I would push people around or I would slap them just to show them that I could. I was watching these cops do that in these footage. They would bump somebody with their baton for no reason, just to show them that they could do that and to sort of demoralize the protester. And I remember seeing bike cops that would be biking through and they would steer into protesters just to knock them over, just to do it. And like, I recognized that mode of dominance that like, hey, let me show you my place and your place. Mine's up here and yours is down there. And so like, again, again and that's what caused me to do my first video about being a cop was saying like hey if you're wondering why they're doing it it's because law enforcement teaches cops to dehumanize the public ask me how i know you know and so yeah it was really radicalizing for me because like people always ask me well, why'd you get out of law enforcement you must have been one of the good ones and you saw all the corruption and you decided and i was like no 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 no. i moved to minnesota couldn't get a cop job in minnesota because i, I didn't have a college degree so i got out of law enforcement because i screwed my myself moving out of state and then had to jump careers. But I was still generally like, you know, police or a societal function, whatever. It wasn't until the BLM protests that I really could see police work for what it was. And I could see this police gang presence for what it was. And I was just seeing it with fresh eyes all of a sudden. And I was remembering all of these things I was taught. And I was remembering all this training that I got. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is terrible. <laughs> Like this is, oh man, wow, I used to do that. Holy shit. Like, and it's hard to talk about without sounding, that's one of the toughest things I think for me is getting into leftism and, you know, you study what the CIA did in South America and you study what the cops are doing now and you study what the FBI has done to labor movements and everywhere else. And you sound like a nut, like you sound like a conspiracy guy. Yeah. And it's like, no, this all really happened. They're doing this. Yeah. And then the more you say that, the more you're like, oh, this guy's really off his rocker. I'm watching these police riots and I'm like, this is not okay what they're doing. This is wrong. And you know, it's just, it's tough. And then the left and the right media, if you can call that left media, was still 
pandering the same friggin' stuff, right? Like how people see CNN is like super far left. And it's like, I think even they were just constantly being that, I mean, even they quote unquote, because in Brazil, I was just there last year for four months. And down there, it's a four pay TV channel and it's extremely conservative pandering to the rich people there. But as for your channel being like a calming place, it's actually surprising hearing you talk about having (laughs) anger because you use such a soothing voice in your videos. And one video in particular, at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about appealing to the things that you remember you liking from back then. I used to be very Catholic when I was growing up and I gave it up when I was in first year of university. And your video on, it was appealing to Christians and I was talking about what you do to the least of these is what you do unto me, that whole scripture. And that's actually a perfect video. Honestly, I was just like, wow, this guy's an amazing marketer because I was able to send that to some of my Christian friends. I'm like, that is exactly like, yeah, that is the part of Christianity that we should be embracing. Like, yes, treat people well, because like, how good are you to be good to your friends? Even like the tax collectors and hypocrites do that. Like you have to be good to your enemies as well. So yeah, it's, I just want to say like, I really appreciate the channel. Just, I know that we're running out of your time here. So one question, really, I know you have a whole video on this, but right now, do you have any recommended video games, books, movies, any media you would want to pitch for people to dive into? Probably. I'm reading like, I can't stop buying books and I'm having, I'm really struggling. In fact, I have like Tuesdays and Thursday nights. I'm going to read instead of watch a movie, but I'm reading a book right now called Black Marxism by Cedric J. Robinson, Making of the Black Radical Tradition. And for me, it's been really interesting interesting because I've kind of, yeah, there's always a debate, like, should you read theory or what, you know, and it's like, ah, read whatever you want. I don't care. But, you know, I'm not a big like theory bro, just because I don't have a ton of time and it's really hard for me to finish books right now. But I've been really enjoying reading Black Marxism because it's an interesting way of talking about sort of like the history of Marxism, but through the lens of black radicals. So instead of just talking about like all these European guys sitting around thinking their deep thoughts, it really goes into like the history of of the Atlantic slave trade and how the events of the Atlantic slave trade and, and of British colonialism before that, how that changed the psyche of different places in Africa and different peoples in Africa and how they approach political radicalism. It's just a really interesting way of talking about that, that I obviously as a white guy from Orange County, California, have no experience with, right? And so it's something for me, whereas I'm being cognizant of my role as like a, you know, YouTuber, content creator, whatever, like I'm really cognizant of how much like anti-blackness there can be even in leftist spaces, how much ableism, how much of these other axes of oppression are still present in the content from certain people and in spaces that we're in. And so it's something for me where I'm trying to be more like cognizant of that and kind of get out of my comfort zone a little bit. So Black Marxism is a really good book. And then I've been watching Only Murders in the Building, which is like, I guess it's a Hulu show. I think I pirate everything. So I don't know. I don't necessarily know the origin. I think it's on Disney Plus. I thought I saw it there. Well, anyway, you know, there's a swanky apartment building in New York and there's a murder and three people decide they're going to do a true crime podcast about it. And it's very funny. It's got Steve Martin and Martin Short and Selena Gomez and they're they're great together. I've been watching The Righteous Gemstones. So those of us with religious trauma, The Righteous Gemstones is very funny and very sweet. Like now that I'm a dad, dad content really speaks to me now. <laughs> <laughs> You're now a sappy old yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> I am. I get all, and so like so much of The Righteous Gemstones is about the relationship relationships of fathers and sons. I don't have a son, I have a daughter, but like so much of it is about like what it means to be a good dad and what it means to be a bad dad. So like I'm, I'm all sappy about that right now. Yeah. Tonic masculinity, as some people call Tonic it. Tonic masculinity. And then the game that I just beat this weekend that I really enjoyed was called Dredge. It's a horror fishing game. 
it's up my alley. Yeah, set in a little kind of Lovecraftian coastal community, and you end up catching fish and just trying to, you know, outfit your little fishing boat with new gear. And I sure hope there's nothing weird out in the water that would scare you. But yeah, I really enjoyed Dredge. It's a great, like, 10-hour, great story, great atmosphere, great art style. You're in, you're out, 10 hours, beautiful experience. Love it. Great. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Do you have any plugs you'd like to plug? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at that dang Phil. I'm on uh, Blue Sky at that dang dad, and I'm on YouTube at that dang dad. And I try to be pretty approachable and pretty chill and try to just keep a keep good vibes and keep it fun. But uh, yeah, that's where people can find me. Really appreciate you having me on. Great. Yeah, I'd love to do this again sometime, and, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sorry that we're we're both named Phil. I don't know if you noticed that.